In this lecture, we're going to be introduced to the topic of exercise immunology by looking at some of the initial work that began to question if there was a difference in infection risk due to exercise habits. So before we can really talk about that, I feel like it's important to at least address what infection is and what causes it. Just in case there are any of you who haven't had either a microbiology course, maybe haven't completed the anatomy and physiology series, or haven't taken my other um, class, pathophysiology. So let's start by just talking about infection. Infection is a condition that can be caused by any of a number of different microorganisms. Now, some of the most common ones you're probably familiar with and have suffered from over the years are bacterial and viral infections, but you can also get infections with fungi or parasites. Those are a little bit less common. Far more common are viral infections. In particular, the most common manifestations for infections are usually upper respiratory infections. And this really is a term that describes any condition that affects the nose, the sinuses, the pharynx or larynx. It also usually involves um, anything that affects the trachea and the bronchi. In other words, the very upper part of the lung structure. So you can kind of see that here. It's an overarching term, a really non-specific term that is used to describe any symptoms that originate in these areas. And part of the reason we even have this term is the fact that it's so difficult to actually diagnose some of these things. So the most common upper respiratory infection is the common cold. And the common cold is caused by a virus. In fact, it's caused by more than 200 types of viruses. There are viruses um, in the rhinovirus family, the coronavirus family, the adenovirus family, that are the most common causes of a cold. In fact, 25 to 60% of the time, it's an upper respiratory infection caused by one of those viruses. We usually get, as an adult, two to four colds a year. Although children have a little bit higher incidence per year, they may have six to 10 colds a year. Their immune system is still learning how to, still being, exposed to these viruses in their environment. And so once we've had an exposure to a virus, we typically won't get that same virus again. But because there are over 200 types that can cause these upper respiratory symptoms, we quite likely will never be completely exposed to all of the viruses that can cause the common cold. Now, another pretty common condition is GI tract infections. And the most common one there is also viral, and it's from a family called noroviruses, actually named after my hometown here in Ohio, Norwalk. Um, and they've learned since discovering that first virus in an outbreak in Norwalk, that there's a whole family of noroviruses. And you hear about these periodically on the news because of an outbreak on a cruise ship or um, you know some other event in which everyone at the event ended up coming down with this. And you probably have had it before, we probably all have. Um, this is what we sometimes call the stomach flu with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, usually for 24 hours to 48 hours, and that kind of goes away. 
Um, now, you may notice in your textbook, because it is a British publisher, that they give a lot of stats. Unfortunately, they're all based on numbers in the UK. But just to give you some background in United States terms, in the US, in terms of non-influenza related upper respiratory costs, these conditions tend to have an economic impact of around $40 billion annually in the US, which means that's the potential costs of people who are suffering from upper respiratory infections who need to go to the doctor. So doctor's visits, um, medications, and it also costs the individual and an employer time with lost work days. So calling off sick, going home early, that sort of thing. So it's an incredibly costly set of infections. Now, since the most common infections are upper respiratory, I think it would be helpful to go over some of the terms. I mentioned that upper respiratory conditions are a really broad um, category that includes all of these things. And as we'll find out a little bit later in the lecture, it's actually kind of an inaccurate representation because not all of the things that cause symptoms may actually be caused by an infection with a virus or bacteria. So some of the upper respiratory conditions can be bacterial. For example, strep throat that affects the, the pharynx and larynx, that is caused by a bacterial organism. Often sinusitis or a sinus infection um, can be a bacterial secondary infection from having a cold from a virus initially. So these can include both viral and bacterial conditions, but sometimes they're not even infectious at all. So your book does talk about how we have to be careful about the terminology that we use. Um, a lot of physicians and textbooks will use just the term URI. Now, URI often indicates upper respiratory infection. However, some of the more recent studies and publications are recommending a change in the terminology that URTI should represent the term upper respiratory tract infection. So here's where that big list comes in that actually includes middle ear infections, many times because they are the result of a common cold that plugs the drainage in the middle ear. And so those usually are reserved for things that we can hopefully clinically diagnose with a physician. Um, but sometimes, we just need to be able to talk generically about the symptoms without confirming a diagnosis of an infection. And so the term URTS, which stands for upper respiratory tract symptoms, is sometimes used in the research literature because they may not go to the effort of clinically or laboratory diagnosis of an upper respiratory tract infection because it's just not economically feasible or practical to diagnose everybody in a huge research study by taking lab results. Um, so sometimes they just use this term that includes any of those symptoms, but regardless of what they're caused by. And another term that's even easier to use is URI, which is an abbreviation that's sort of changing and evolved recently to mean upper respiratory illness. And so what's nice about this particular term, and that's the term 
these are the two terms I prefer because this kind of becomes an umbrella term that allows us to not worry about what the actual cause was and just worry about what it clinically does to athletes and you know non-athletes, just your everyday citizen who might be affected by just the outcome of the illness regardless of its cause. So this kind of is an umbrella that includes infection, that includes inflammation, and also allows you to lump allergies in there because that often is a source of inflammation that can't always be distinguished from infection for many of us. And this is a good term to use if you're not going to actually confirm that an infection occurred. So we're gonna try to maybe use that term as we go forward. Now, you know that we all have, as I said, two to four colds a year. And if you're like me, it's one of the most frustrating things because it tends to happen when you're busy or stressed and you don't really have time to just lay in bed and recuperate. Um, and if you're trying to be productive and it's happening at the most inconvenient time, it makes it really difficult to devote that time to recovery. So what if there was a prevention for upper respiratory illness? What if there was some sort of magic bullet? Would you, would you do it? That's what they kind of started to study, especially in athletes who really want to maintain a training schedule without having to take up to a week off or more to recuperate from an illness. The common cold um, actually usually lasts seven to 10 days for the average person. And so that's a long time to kind of not feel quite up to doing your regular training. And during that time, that sort of deconditioning that can occur in that week's time might mean that when they get back to training again, they're not quite at the same level as they were before and they need a recovery period. So. What they did was they started to look in the you know late 80s, early 90s at whether there was a relationship between exercise intensity and volume, in other words, training load, and an individual's susceptibility to upper respiratory tract infection. Now, what they kind of looked at then was whether regular moderate physical activity could decrease your risk. And that's actually what they found. They proposed something that looks like a J-shaped curve. And one of the studies that's kind of been used as the, the initial um, look into this topic is one by Neiman in 1994. Now, when it was first proposed that people who were sedentary had an average risk of upper respiratory infection, and that people with regular moderate exercise had a lower risk, this was due to a really small number of studies that actually only looked at single bouts of exercise. And usually it was endurance related exercise. But what they did find was that with some regular moderate activity or physical activity, this ended up decreasing what's called relative risk, in other words, relative to sedentary people, decreasing the relative risk of infection compared to people with a sedentary level of physical activity. And this is huge because that means if you are looking for ways to reduce your risk of a cold or other upper respiratory infections that might take time away from work, school, athletic activity, then 
that is just another reason why exercise is so important to have as a moderate regular activity in your life. Now, what unfortunately they also found was that some studies reported that marathon runners actually had an increased risk of upper respiratory symptoms in the seven to 14 days after a race. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that all marathon runners had symptoms. The majority had no symptoms, but relative to the people who had moderate activity, they actually had a little bit of an increased risk following those intense periods of training. So the question then became why? If, you know, if exercise is good, shouldn't more be better? What we actually will seek here coming up is that there are some things that occur with prolonged high intensity exercise that actually increase the sensitivity in your respiratory tissues. In other words, the extra movement of air in your trachea and your bronchi and your lungs. And also this idea that there may be stress hormones released as part of this high intensity activity that if you've taken the patho course or have read about um, cortisol or familiar with cortisol, that's one of your stress hormones, it actually reduces your immune response. That's just a normal response to a stress hormone. And so that may actually reduce your immune response as well. So we'll talk a little bit more about this, but this is a really good thing to think about because it helps you realize what you can recommend to people. And if you're working with athletes who have a high training load, you might be able to use some of these other strategies we'll talk about throughout the semester to be able to encourage them that in the midst of their high training, what else can they do um, to reduce their risks? Now, some individuals were kind of not all that happy about that result, saying that your marathon runners and elite athletes have an increased risk of infection. So there was actually a study about 10 years ago that kind of refuted some of that, saying that, you know, there's a difference between a highly trained individual and an elite athlete. And that they predicted that you actually have kind of the equivalent of someone with moderate regular exercise in terms of risk if you're an elite athlete. So this idea is that a prerequisite for elite performance might be the ability to withstand infection during times of that intense training, that they wouldn't have been able to even get there if they didn't have this innate ability to withstand those risks with a period of intense training. So this is kind of um, another possibility. You've still got the J-shaped curve here, which takes care of the majority of the population. Your elite population is really a very small percentage of the overall world or US population. And so this might be something that depending on a population you would be working with someday that you would look more into this. However, for the majority of the population, we, we really tend to think of this relationship as a J-shaped curve. But I wanted to introduce this as a possibility depending on your future practice. Now, many of these studies that looked at this, they had issues. This is a new and emerging discipline. And so you have to really begin to critique 
the results that are being proposed and published in terms of the way, number one, that they do their study methods and also how they're actually confirming results. So let's talk about some of the issues with these. Many of the very early studies were survey-based, and in those surveys, they would ask participants to self-report their respiratory illness. And there are multiple issues with this. One of them is what they call the look-back window. So if they're survey-based, and they're asking people to think about how many colds they had in the last three months. I don't remember every cold I had in the last three months. I might have a ballpark idea. I might have a ballpark idea of the period of time that the illness lasted for, but you have this, this issue sometimes with what's called recall or recall bias. That makes it difficult to say that your results are really reliable. You also tend to have an issue with survey-based look-back um, methods as having a positive response bias. And what this means is that people who had symptoms are more likely to send their survey back. Whereas if people who didn't really feel they had any big illnesses or didn't recall any significant issues, they might not have even bothered to return the survey. And so you end up thinking that the incidence of these upper respiratory illnesses is higher than it actually is because the people who didn't have issues didn't bother to send their information in to be part of the study. So these are some of the potential issues. And many of these were really short-term studies. They looked back a very short period of time and they didn't necessarily include someone trying to do exercise. They only based it on individuals who had already established habits, which could be okay if you had valid ways of measuring that. Now, in addition to that, you can't always confirm that it is an infection. And this is why I go back to these terms that I defined for you at the beginning. Confirmation of this is not easy. So current recommendations for athletes to minimize their infection risk actually focuses on minimizing transition, I'm sorry, transmission of the infection. But what if it wasn't actually an infection? Well, in many of these studies, we don't know for sure. It might be better that they used the term upper respiratory illness because some of these studies never bothered to actually test for the infection. Now that being said, let me tell you how difficult this is to do. In order to do a clinical or laboratory confirmation of an upper respiratory infection, you have to do either a saliva or a saliva specimen, in other words, spit or throat swab. And because your two main culprits of upper respiratory infection are viruses and bacteria, there are different ways you have to test for those. So viruses are usually confirmed by looking for DNA doing a process called PCR or polymerase chain reaction, which tries to amplify any viral DNA that is found in the sample. That's a very, that's actually what you see here in this image. That's a really expensive procedure. Now you can grow viruses in cell culture, which is what you see in this picture, but it's crazy expensive 
it doesn't always go well because there are issues of contamination and it takes a really long time to grow viruses in cell culture. So that's usually not the way that they confirm a viral infection. Now, bacterial infections, they do a regular culture on uh, like in a Petri dish with a media. That at a minimum takes about 24 to 48 hours and maybe even a day or two after that in order to confirm the exact strain of bacteria and rule out any normal flora that's growing in your mouth. So you can see here, not only is it not practical to test everybody in a study, it's not going to be cost effective to have to, especially if you're doing it at multiple times, if, if it's a year long study and we tend to get two to four colds a year, that means at a minimum, you're probably doing at least two confirmation tests per individual participant. And they take a long time to actually confirm and are pretty expensive. So the thing that I keep coming back to when I look at studies that don't actually ever end up confirming it is does it really matter if we identify whether it was a virus or bacteria? Because regardless of the cause of the upper respiratory symptoms, it still affects an individual's ability to maintain a training schedule and competition if it's an athlete. And if it's just a regular Joe non-athlete, it's affecting their ability to go to work, to go to school, to maintain other you know, activities of daily living for that period of time in which the symptoms are most significant. So maybe it doesn't really matter. But what is interesting though, is that if it's not an actual infection, how do we try to keep people from having symptoms? Because infection, we can try to reduce transmission by making you wash your hands more, covering your mouth when you cough or sneeze, you know, um, avoiding sharing water bottles or chapstick or those types of things. But these non-infectious non causes, we have a little bit harder of a time trying to reduce incidence. So these are the possibilities if it's not an infection. There have been studies that kind of look at whether just inflammation in the airway could be the reason that you're having upper respiratory symptoms. And this I find really interesting. And this it's sort of logical if you think about it. So when you're breathing at rest, your ventilation rates are usually moving around five to 10 liters of air through your lungs per minute. So let me sort of make a note of that just for reference. At rest, you move about five to 10 liters per minute in terms of your ventilation rate. Now, if a marathon runner were to be measured in terms of their ventilation rate, they move between 100 and 200 liters per minute. So you can see what a drastically different amount of air is moving through the lungs. Now, what they were able to find is this increase in ventilation called exercise hyperventilation actually stimulates the bronchial cells, the cells that line your bronchi, to release these chemical mediators, something we'll talk about in a minute. It's a little chemical structure that works on other cells to cause inflammation. What happens here is they attract other immune cells and stimulate those epithelial cells to begin releasing things into the trachea. This increases the osmolarity and produces what you know as inflammation. This is when you kind of have trouble breathing. It feels like you have gunk in your throat. This could be due to a virus or a bacteria, 
But what if it's just due to the fact that you moved so much air through those tissues that they're a little bit inflamed? That's a possibility, particularly in those who are doing a more intense level of training. It's also possible that during that process of exercise, they are inhaling conditions or objects that are irritating the lungs or the bronchi. So the possibility here is, is the environment. What if you're inhaling cold, dry air while you're exercising? This can cause inflammation. What if you're exercising in an area that has smog or a high pollution rate, especially if you're allergic to any of those things? you could end up having symptoms of inflammation that's not due to a virus or a bacteria that's just um, causing irritation because of something you inhaled. And then other chemical products that might stimulate an allergic immune response, which in many cases is not able to be distinguished from an infectious source of inflammation unless you did these expensive tests. So here's another reason <clears throat> why using the terms upper respiratory illness or upper respiratory tract symptoms might be more ideal because do we really care what the cause is if it's gonna affect you either way? So that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to point this out because we may not necessarily know what the cause is. Suffice it to say, there have been significant issues both with how data was collected for some of the studies that influence these theories, but also a complete explanation of what happens given by these theories themselves. So one of the more recent models that has been proposed to explain why individuals might be more or less susceptible to infection related to exercise is called the tissue injury model. And what makes this one unique and actually makes it make a little more sense is it specifically looks at what's going on in the tissue and how that might be influencing not only the immune system, but also related to future exercise and that's effect on your susceptibility. So what this model does is it proposes that tissue damage resulting from repetitive mechanical trauma during intense exercise combined with an accumulation of either suboptimal recovery or an increase in the training load, you've got a pro-inflammatory response followed by an anti-inflammatory response. And this is kind of explained a little bit here in this image. So this goes through what's actually happening at a tissue and cellular level in the muscle. And so what it's indicating here is depending on how much time goes by, you've got some changes to the actual cells. And I know we haven't talked about some of these particular cells or um, chemokines and cytokines yet, but what you can at least see from this is that initially in the first few hours, you have some pro-inflammatory changes, and that's what this is saying here. But then at some point within that first 24-hour period, you do switch to an anti-inflammatory response. And that is actually what in the end ends up being positive about repeated exercise, regular what we would call chronic exercise. But what could be bad about this is if a lack of recovery period or an increase in training load 
causes this to become imbalanced more toward a pro-inflammatory change because of extensive muscle damage without sufficient recovery time, you may end up with an imbalanced inflammatory response. And that is what leads to the increased susceptibility. So what is proposed here with the tissue injury model is that there is a positive feedback loop. And this imbalanced inflammatory response becomes both the cause and the effect of overreaching or overtraining. And this will become a little bit more clear as we start to learn about some of these components and cytokines that are um, in the system as a result of exercise and muscle damage. So this tends to be what we think might truly be going on here. And we'll learn a little bit more that, about this as we go forward. But there are definitely some other influences. If someone has high levels of stress, they tend to have greater risk. If they have very poor sleep quality, they tend to have greater risk of infection. If they have poor diet, especially if that includes any vitamin or essential mineral deficiencies, that increases their risk. And poor hygiene, and you know these things, like hand washing, covering coughs, and touching the eyes and face. Now, this is something most everybody does without even thinking about it. And when you look it up sometime, how many times the average person touches their face, it's really disturbing because you realize every surface that you touch potentially has an organism or virus that you then could transmit um, and inoculate yourself with. And you may not react to it if it's something you've seen before or your immune system takes care of it, or it could be the reason you got that cold two to four times a year. So these are all something that you can change. And what I find interesting, so these improving these things along with regular moderate exercise is the best prevention for the most common infections of upper respiratory tract infection. That's the best prevention. However, what's also interesting is the fact that just Increasing exercise is kind of a vicious cycle, but it's a good vicious cycle. Just increasing exercise actually tends to increase these three things because exercise reduces stress, exercise tends to improve your sleep quality, and exercise may increase your appetite, which may then, because you're exercising, cause you to be more aware of the types of foods that you're choosing in your diet. So it's a good thing actually, because exercise will then continue to have positive effects on these other potential influences with infection. So some researchers have tried to take these other variables and put them into a more global or broad view of what might actually be influencing the susceptibility to infection and as it might relate to exercise. And this has been put together and proposed as the biopsychosocial model of stress, athletic injury, and health. And while that sounds like a mouthful, it actually does a pretty nice job of taking into account all the possible influences that maybe you wouldn't originally think would contribute to susceptibility and injury and infection, but actually they go together quite nicely. So it starts out by saying that there are multiple mechanisms and stressors that apply here. So initially you have psycho 
psychological and physiological stressors. So some of these might have to do with life events that therefore are psychological and may then influence your physical perceptions, but also could influence your level of training. Perhaps to deal with stress, you increase the intensity of your physical training, or because of a life stressor, you decrease your physical training. It's all possible things in this equation that could influence your susceptibility. Then these also both contribute to and are affected by things related to both behavioral and physiological mechanisms. So in terms of physiological mechanisms, if you are stressed, you have an increase in stress hormones. And as we'll talk about later in the semester, stress hormones can have effect on immunosuppression. Immunosuppression then will obviously lead to an increased susceptibility and illness incidence. And you will have a decrease in the ability to repair muscle. You could even have changes to your blood vessel responses like peripheral arteries and peripheral vessel responses. It could also lead to changes that alter the other behaviors that you do. So your self-care, which might include sleep and the way that you deal with stress. And if you are being treated or trying to alter some other sort of disease or condition that um, you currently have, you might change that treatment as part of your behavioral response to a stressor. All of these would cause a maladaptation to your exercise training and potentially change your ability for the body to respond to an injury and how long that recovery takes. So there is something to this particular model. And while it seems a little bit messy and um, too broad, it actually does take into account some of these things that we know do apply to the immune system's ability to fight off um, an infection or deal with an injury if you are having a um, training regimen that routinely is causing muscle injury without enough time to, to adequately heal. So now that we know the terminology, now that we know a little bit about the potential things that lead to an upper respiratory tract infection and the issues with the studies that have been done, let's look at some of the more recent studies that tried to address these issues and kind of try to see what they're saying about infection and exercise. So studies consistently tend to report a reduction in upper respiratory tract infection or risk of between 18 and 67%. So consistently, if you take a whole bunch of studies together, you will find a reduction of between 18 and 67% with regular moderate exercise. You will also see then that, especially when you look at these other potential risk factors, that some studies were able to look at groups of individuals and see if it affected specific populations. So one of the potential issues with these is that they didn't use the best study design. And if you've taken, you know, the exercise science um, exercise, or I'm sorry, the, the research methods course, you probably have heard the term randomized controlled trial before um, and know that that's kind of the gold standard of research. Well, there haven't been a whole lot of those done, unfortunately. Many of them have been studies with very small numbers. They've been um, looking backwards and asking people to remember things. These few that I'm going to quote or talk about here 
are the next best thing we can get to a randomized controlled trial and what's out there in the literature right now. So this one was actually an intervention study. They didn't just ask people to look back and think about what they did in the past three months. This one was interesting because unfortunately it had very small numbers. Weren't a whole lot of people involved in this study. But um, what they did was they had women who were mildly obese engage in about 15 weeks. So it was at least, you know, a little bit longer than a few months. Engage in five 45-minute walking sessions of at least 60% of their heart rate reserve. Then they had another group that had nothing beyond normal everyday activity. So in other words, they didn't ask this control group to do any type of additional activity. Nothing beyond regular activity. And what they found was that while there was no difference in the number of episodes of upper respiratory tract infection between the two groups, there were fewer days with symptoms in the ones that did exercise. So what this means is they both got two to four colds on average during that time period, but the people who exercised, those women recovered more quickly and maybe had fewer significant symptoms. So maybe they only felt their symptoms for four days as opposed to nine. So this actually, even though it didn't seem to make a difference in the number of episodes, it still was more helpful in terms of getting those people back to a normal lifestyle more quickly. So it's still a positive benefit and um, evidence for encouraging exercise, especially in this case among mildly obese women. Now, another population, which we'll talk about later in the semester, that tends to show lower immune function is older adults. And so this next one is quite interesting too, because there have been other studies of um, older women or menopausal women that is talked about in your textbook that show lower incidence. But here they did an observational study. So they didn't necessarily assign someone to do exercise. They just divided the people who were there into groups based on their existing exercise. What was cool about this is they had over 500 people. So the numbers were really small in this particular study um, with the mildly obese women, but they had over 500 people in this study by Matthews. It's on page 15, by the way, of your text if you wanna read more about it. And here they included a really wide range of subjects. They were between 20 and 70 years old so we were able to see maybe how it affects younger people and how it affects older people. And they looked at them for over a year. And they also took some other data and adjusted for things like their age, like their level of activity, um, like their diet, things that could, as we talked about up here, whoops, sorry about that, other things that we know can affect your risk. And by controlling for those other factors, they were able to get a much better idea of what their risk of infection was related to activity. And what they found is that regular moderate physical activity was associated with a 20 to 30% reduction in your annual risk 
of an upper respiratory tract infection. Now again, if you look, they didn't necessarily confirm with laboratory results, but they kind of just lumped that in as sort of a, a clinical diagnosis. And that's one of the factors you have to look at when you critique studies is, you know, are they, if they're using this term infection, did they really confirm that? Now, another one that had a really large number of participants um, included 1,000 male and female, again, with a nice age range, 18 to 85, and they studied them for 12 weeks. And these, again, are relatively recent studies. And they had them also exercising for five weeks. And then they had a group that kind of did like stretching and they really only did, um, you know, a day or less than a day of exercise. And what they found here was those who had at least five days per week, they had 43% fewer days with symptoms. So I like in this case that they talked about symptoms regardless of the cause compared to those who had less than a day per week. And what's great about this is this study addressed many of those design issues that I talked about that make previous studies kind of difficult to figure out what's going on. They used a validated questionnaire. They controlled for those different confounders. Um, they looked specifically at symptoms, so they had a good set of terminology to avoid confusion. So these are some real examples of what they have found that you can use as reasoning for patients, clients, or athletes as if they need any more convincing when their doctor says you need to exercise. You know, none of us likes to be sick. I personally hate getting a cold because it's not typically so much symptoms that I can't function during the day, but it just makes it really hard to go through a day if you have responsibilities that you have to keep. So anything that would make me have fewer colds is usually something that I wanna do. So it's just another reason to encourage people to exercise moderate, regular activity. But why does this happen? It's a whole reason we're gonna have this course the whole rest of the semester. How does exercise affect the immune system? You're gonna get a chance to learn about the different cells in the immune system. What are their roles? What do they do? And then, you know, why does the influence um, of the physical activity affect your risk of infection? Why does that happen? We're gonna learn about how exercise affects your actual white blood cell or leukocyte numbers. We're gonna go through the different types of immunity um, called innate, acquired, and mucosal immunity. So you can see what exercise does to each of those types of immunity in your body. And then the things that you're probably gonna use in practice is once you kind of learn how it affects, how are you going to apply that in your everyday practice in the future? This will help you as we get into these chapters, learn about extreme environments and what you can do you know, if you have a runner or somebody who, um, you know, wants to maintain a training schedule but wants to be outside, what can you do about those extreme environments? Really hot days, really cold days, um, you know, look at those periods of intensified training. What can you do during those training periods to reduce risk of infection? What can you do to have nutrition or diet help you reduce risk during those intensified training areas. So these are some good ways that we can look forward to using the practical knowledge about the immune system and giving advice or helping to um, inform patients, clients, and athletes about what they can do to reduce their risk. And what we'll find is that 
there are some really interesting ways that your body works in relationship to the immune system. So while it might seem sort of abstract and potentially confusing as we start out, hopefully I can help you understand these different really complex systems in a simplified way that you can apply in the future. So let me know if you have any questions on this content and I look forward to learning more about the immune system with you and then seeing how we can apply this information.